Right. The last uh, thing for me to do is a pleasure to introduce our speaker for this morning. She is one half of our amazing senior leadership team. And I know she's got a fantastic word she wants to share with us today. So please welcome Nikki. Thank you, James. Morning, everyone. It's great to see you. My lovely husband is at home with COVID, along with at least a third of the church, it seems. So I think we should give all of those watching online who maybe are feeling a bit below par a little shout out. Should we just shout, we love you? Are you ready? Yeah, we love you. Um, great. We're going to be continuing with our portraits theme today. I'm just going to get my technology lined up. Hang on. There we go. Yeah, we're good to go. We're continuing with our portraits theme today. And as I was praying about this theme of portraits and thinking about what to bring this morning, I was reminded of this incident here. Now, first glance, you might think, ah... Oh, what a lovely family portrait. And it does look great, but there's a messy story behind this picture right here. So Aria, our firstborn, um, she must have been just a couple of weeks old and maybe even less than that. And we took her to have those newborn photos that every parent gets pressured into feeling like they need to have on their wall. And um, obviously, I was still feeling a bit groggy having given birth. Um, we were totally sleep deprived and we were just figuring out the whole journey of becoming a family of three. And um, we get there and she wouldn't go to sleep. She just wouldn't go to sleep. And the photographer didn't want to take photos of her with her eyes open. Well, it got embarrassing. I, I did everything I knew how to do. I kept feeding her, kept rocking her. But she was wide awake to the point where the photographer starts saying, well, this has never happened before. I've just never had a baby that stayed awake. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with my daughter? I'm clearly a terrible mom. I can't get her to sleep. Um, and so whilst her eyes are closed here, this was actually the second attempt. We had to come back on another day because after three hours, she still hadn't slept. Um, so we came back second time round, and yes, yes, she did sleep. But not before this photo was taken. We were just, we were just um, the photographer was just setting it up and Pete was holding Aria and uh, we're all ready to go. And the last thing they do in these moments is whip off the nappy because obviously, you know, there's always a bit of risk attached to that moment. And clearly it was not Pete's day because just before the photo was about to be taken, a punami happened everywhere. Um, and so we got all cleaned up. We went for the shot a second time. And sure enough, second time, right on cue, she did it again. It was hilarious. So family portrait is what is the theme of my message today. And I guess what I want to say is this. There is mess in every family. There's mess in every family. And you might look initially, and if I were to entitle this beautiful thing that might be hanging on my wall at home, you might look and go, ah, oh, peace reigns, or what a beautiful baby daughter. But it does not do justice the moments that preceded and followed that photo sheet. This morning, I want to, instead of taking a look at one person in the Bible, I want to take a closer look at a famous family portrait in the New Testament. Now, I need to point out, clearly, 
they did not look anything like this. Unfortunately, I am limited to free, royalty-free images, and there are not many pictures of fathers and older sons, okay? So please understand, I realize that culturally, this does not represent the family that I'm speaking about today. But it's a story told about Jesus in the New Testament, about a father and two sons, and it's in Luke 15. And initially, Jesus paints the broad brushstrokes about this family in just a simple opening line. A certain man had two sons. Perhaps it sounded to those listening at the time like an appealing family portrait at first glance. But as he tells the story, he begins to paint a much more messy portrait for us. And we soon realize that behind the veneer, there's dysfunction, there's brokenness, there's relational breakdown in this family. Now, if I'd been naming our family portrait, as I said, maybe looking at it, I would have said peace reigns, but as we know, it wouldn't have encapsulated the fullness of that moment. And similarly, this story, I think, has been really misnamed in the Bible. It's always been given the name, the story of the prodigal son or the story of the lost son. And it's partially true. It is a story about a wayward son who returns or who's extravagantly reckless with money. But I actually wonder if a little bit like our family portrait, that title does a disservice to what Jesus was trying to communicate through this family portrait that he was painting. Because yes, it is. Traditionally, when we read it, the parable majors on that um, youngest son, the one who reaches his lowest ebb, comes back, repents, and restores relationship. But the title misses out two key members of the family and two important members of the family that amplify out what perhaps looks like a slightly slanted portrait to really capture the fullness of what Jesus wanted to paint in that story. It's not just a story about a lost son. It's a story about two lost sons. And it's also a story about a loving, gracious, and extravagantly good dad. Take a look with me. Let's read together. Luke 15, 11 to 32. It's not going to be on the screen today because there's a lot of text. Um, but please feel free. Follow it on your phone or however you want to. Luke 15, 11 to 32, here we go. Then he said, that's Jesus, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them inappropriately said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. So he divided the estate between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered together everything that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he wasted his fortune in reckless and immoral living. I think we can imagine what that might have looked like. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to do without and be in need. So he went and forced himself on one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He would have gladly eaten the carob pods that the pig, pigs were eating, but they could not satisfy his hunger, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he finally came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough food while I'm dying here of hunger? 
I will get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring out the best robe for the guest of honor and put it on him and give him a ring for his hand and sandals for his feet and bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let us invite everyone and feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was as good as dead and is alive again. He was lost and has been found. So they began to celebrate. Now... His older son was in the field, and when he returned and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Heaven forbid. That's my addition. So he summoned one of the servants and began asking what this celebration meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the elder brother became angry and deeply resentful and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he said to his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never neglected or disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given me so much as a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this other son of yours comes... I love that. This other son of yours comes, who has devoured your estate with immoral women. You slaughtered that fattened calf for him. The father said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was as good as dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. I mean, it speaks for itself in many ways, doesn't it? What a beautiful, beautiful story. But I want to just give us a tiny bit of context as we delve into this, because this comes um, towards the end of, well, the middle of Luke 15. But to understand who Jesus was talking to, we need to skip back to the top of Luke 15, to verses 1 to 2, so that we can get why he's telling this story. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. I love that. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began muttering and complaining. You can imagine them muttering under their breath, can't you? Saying, this man accepts and welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus goes on to tell three stories, and this is the third of the three. And that's significant, and we'll find out why. So there's two sets of people in Jesus' audience. There are the sinners and the tax collectors who have drawn near. They just can't get enough of Jesus. They want to hear what he's got to say because every time he speaks, good news is coming their way. Every time he speaks, he's bringing stuff that they never understood before that creates this massive circle of belonging around them in a culture where they have always been shunned and ostracized and isolated. But you also have this group of Pharisees and scribes, and they're, they're pretty much outraged. They can't stand the fact that those people are getting close to Jesus. They can't stand the fact that he's associating with them. They are judgmental, and they're indignant. 
And so Jesus tells these three stories. I'm going to put the spotlight on each person today in our portrait. And as I do, what I'm really wanting to do is to ask you, where do I see myself? How do I identify with each person in this story? Is there part of looking at this portrait that makes me feel uncomfortable? Is there part of looking at this portrait that challenges me? Or is there part of looking at this portrait that actually sets me free and is life-giving? Let's take a look at the older son. Now, this guy, he's the epitome of entitlement. You know, if we're talking about entitlement in this day and age, that is this guy. He wants all of the freedom with none of the responsibility. He doesn't want his family ties. He doesn't want the duties that come with being the son. He wants to live this hedonistic life of pleasure-seeking. He wants all of the benefits and blessings that come with being a son without any investment into the relationship. I'm going to say that again. He wants all of the benefits and blessings of being a son without any investment into the relationship. Does it sound a bit like us sometimes? I can only speak for myself. There are moments where I really enjoy the blessings and benefits that come from knowing God, from being part of his family. But I sometimes struggle to take that that relationship as seriously as I might. Maybe we have more in common than I thought. And there's distance in this relationship. You see, he doesn't choose or want to be in his father's presence. He asks for his inheritance and then he takes off and he goes to a distant land. He gets as far out of there as he possibly can. And asking for his inheritance in that culture was like wishing his dad dead. It was basically going to his father and saying, you're dead to me, you're nothing to me, give me what's mine and I'm off. It was the ultimate dishonor. So he leaves with the money and he lives as though his dad doesn't exist. The relationship isn't good. There's a breakdown there somewhere. He's not interested in co-laboring with his dad. He wants to do his own thing. All of the freedom, no personal cost, no ownership for his actions. And so this cycle of dishonor continues because he goes out and he squanders everything he's been given. He spends it on all the stuff that he can enjoy, everything that the world has to offer. He goes there, he does it, he finds the fair weather friends, he has a great time. Let's not, you know, let's not lie about it. He had a great time. But in the process, he's treating his dad with utter contempt. It's like spitting in his face. And in Jewish culture, honoring your father and mother, we know that's an important part of the framework that God sets out for us to live by. It was shocking. It was scandalous. It was the height of dishonor. But he is distracted. He's distracted by all of this stuff that promises much and delivers little. Stuff that would temporarily make him feel great. He gratifies his own desires. He's reckless. He's young. He's got no thought for the consequence. But ironically, 
his version of living free ends up leaving him completely and utterly ensnared. The tide turns, the money runs out, the friends move on, the world around him changes, the climate changes, and he winds up at his lowest ebb, alone and definitely ashamed, doing something that Jewish listeners of the day would have found absolutely abhorrent. And I can't get this point home enough. You think the immoral living was the thing that shocked those Pharisees and scribes? No way. There's stuff like that littered throughout the Old Testament. They were familiar with that. But this moment, the moment where he ends up feeding the pigs, tending to pigs and even wishing that he could eat the pigs' food, that is the shocker. Pigs were considered unclean in Jewish culture. And this would have absolutely shocked Jesus' listenership. It's the last place that you would expect a Jewish boy from a respectable family to end up. It's the ultimate in disgrace. And there we find him. Distance, dishonor, distraction, disgrace. And then there's this beautiful pivot point in his story. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses... There's this moment of realization. It's like suddenly it crystallizes on him. His choices, his actions, the severed relationship with his dad, where he finds himself. It's like this wake-up call. And he comes to his senses. And the reason this is important is that actually when we get to the older son, he doesn't have this moment. He doesn't have a come-to-his-senses moment that we hear of. So that makes this moment all the more powerful in terms of what Jesus is trying to convey when it comes to our two factions here. The sinners and the tax collectors for whom this is awesome news. The Pharisees and the scribes who are getting more and more outraged as they listen. He comes to his senses. He comes home. And he comes clean. And he says to his dad, I've messed up dad. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He acknowledges for the first time in his life, he takes ownership. He takes that responsibility that he hadn't been able to take before. And we'll pick up the rest of his story shortly. But I want to stop and say, where do we see ourselves in that younger son? Are there features of his portrait that are familiar to us? Maybe today, Some of us feel like that son. Maybe there's a distance between us and our dad in heaven. Maybe we've made some choices, we've done some stuff, and we feel that sense of disconnection, feel that sense of separation. There's good news in this story for you today, if that's you. Or maybe some of us, we've wanted the blessings and the benefits of being a son or daughter without really putting in the effort for that relationship, for that shared responsibility that we were designed for with our dad. Let's take a look at this beautiful dad. So, the dad. He gives his son the freedom he asks for, despite the massive dishonor of being asked for his inheritance. 
I think that says a lot about his nature and his character, that he actually divided the estate between them. There's no big argy-bargy. There's no conversation. The son asks, and the dad does it. He gives him freedom. And I love that about our dad in heaven. He always gives us freedom to make our choices. Good choices, not so good choices. He doesn't stop us doing that. He endures the pain of his son leaving. And then the shame and the indignity of the community around him asking questions with raised eyebrows. News definitely traveled back of what that younger son was doing. How do we know? Because later on in the passage, the older son quotes it. And he doesn't realize that his brother's returned. So he's found out that news somewhere around the edges. They knew. They knew what he was doing. Imagine every time he's engaging with his peers and people are going, "Mm, now what happened with your son? Severed relationship. It was one-sided He had a heart for relationship with his son. But to his son, he's as good as dead. And I wonder whether really the biggest tragedy for the dad in this story was not the wasted money. It wasn't about the inheritance. I think the biggest agony must have been the wasted potential, the wasted time, the wasted opportunities all those years when they could have been together, side by side, making memories, building a legacy together. How painful. His heart must have been breaking. But he's always on the lookout for how that relationship can be rebuilt. And instead of slamming the door and going, fine, you want it your way, I'm done, it's over. Door is closed, you're never coming back. You're never setting foot in my house. What does this dad do? Well, while he was still a great way off, he spots his son. And that tells us so much about this incredible dad that we have in heaven. He's looking, he's watching, he's waiting. Years have gone by and still he's able to spot his son in the distance. Why? Because his father heart would not let go. His father heart could not let go of the hope that one day his son would return and they would do life together as they were designed to do. And so he watches and he waits and I'm sure he prays and I'm sure that there are moments where it's hard to do that. But he was waiting. He was waiting for that day where his son would turn up. There's a beautiful proactivity about it. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't moved on. He's left the door ajar. And every day he's looking out onto that horizon. And then there's this moment where his dad sees him. And I love this. His father saw him. You know what it's like when someone really sees you. You know what that's like? People see you all the time, don't they? But generally they see the bits of us that we want to present. But in this moment, his dad sees him. He sees him covered in pig filth. He sees him emaciated and hungry, desperate, dragging his feet, no sandals. He sees him at his absolute lowest, weakest, most devastating moment. Not the highlights, not the filtered bits on social media. And the son expects judgment. 
He expects punishment. He expects reproach at the, wor- at, you know, at the mildest, maybe a pep talk, at the worst, hostility, and a closed door slammed in his face. But that's not what this dad does. He's moved with compassion. He runs and he embraces him and he kisses him like any great dad would do. This is a deep, deep, unconditional love. And it's not contingent on his behavior or actions, simply on his sonship. You're mine. I love you because you're mine. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. You are mine. Church, that's how your dad in heaven feels about you today. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. When your heart turns toward your dad, he is waiting for you. In fact, he's gunning for you. He's running towards you. You move an inch, he'll take a mile to bring you home. And then there's this incredible moment of forgiveness where relationship is restored. There's a recognition on the son's part of what he's done and the pain he's caused his dad. But there's a recognition on the part of the father of just how much he loves what he sees within his son. He still sees that potential. He still sees that good heart. He still sees that incredible sonship that cannot be removed by squandering an inheritance or anything else. And there's this beautiful moment of reconciliation between the two and a reinstation of his sonship. And you know, he calls out the servants to get the best cloak. He puts this mantle over him. Think about what, you know, he stank, he was dirty. And he just covers him. It's such a beautiful picture of grace in the best robe of all, restoring his dignity, covering his shame in that moment. Isn't that what God does for us so, so often? And then the signet ring is like this sign of authority. It's the seal of sonship. And in that moment, he's saying, no way. You're not coming back as a servant. You're not coming back as a hired hand. You're coming back as my son. You will always be my son. And that seals the deal right there. And then there's this incredible rejoicing. He just wants to throw a party. Maybe there's some of us in this room today who have this kind of heart for our sons and daughters. Maybe some of you are agonizing over distance or disconnection or distraction that has crept into your relationships. Maybe you're watching and waiting for them to come home, metaphorically speaking. This dad inspires us not to give up and not to lose hearts. It's full of hope. And if today you feel like that younger son, maybe you feel like you're doing the walk of shame, rehearsing your speech in your head, I want you to know that this love is already running towards you. You are only one moment away from reinstation, reconciliation, and a party being thrown in heaven over you. You're never as far as you think. So finally, we're going to shift back to this second son, but I just want to pause and revisit the context, because if you remember, we've got these two groups. We've got the sinners and tax collectors, we've got the Pharisees and the scribes who are irritated with this group here because they don't want them to be surrounded by Jesus, to be surrounded by them, and they cannot get why he does. And I love this because, if you remember me saying, Jesus answers their muttering and complaining with three parables, and this is the third of the three. Now listen, the first two follow a very similar pattern. 
something is lost, something is found, party is thrown, right? Something is lost, something is found, party is thrown. So this has happened twice. So I reckon, as they're listening to this story, the audience are all thinking, well, we know where this is going. And we know that when it gets to the party, this is winding up. But this is where Jesus is awesome and super clever and a literary genius because in his story, it doesn't finish with a party this time. They're expecting that wraps it up. But no, there's a final blow. There's a final person that he wants them to meet. And it looks a lot like the second group. You see, all of this group over here, they're thinking, man, this is the best news I've ever heard. I can come close. I have a dad who accepts me just the way I am, no matter how unclean other people might think I look look. But there's this self-satisfied, smug group of people over here thinking, well, that's great, but I wouldn't be welcoming those guys. And Jesus saves the best till last. He turns the table in this moment. And there are eight more verses, which is why I get irritated with the title of, that's, that's attributed to this parable, because it's eight verses. It's a lot. There's a lot Jesus wants to bring out from this second son. And I reckon it was a punch in the guts for those Pharisees and scribes listening. Let's take a look. The older son has pretty much done the right thing all his life. He didn't go. He didn't live it up. He stayed in his dad's house working, well, we'll say with him, but we'll find out it was more like working for him on the estate. He has obeyed every single thing that his dad has asked him to do. He is the model son. He has kept to the rules. He's been good. Sound like anyone? Sound like anyone in that equation? But he's every bit as lost as the younger son. He's every bit as entitled as the younger son. He is every bit as broken as the younger son. You see, He may have been in close proximity to his dad, but he never inhabited his dad's presence the whole time he was there. He's been in his house working hard, done all the right things outwardly, but his heart is distant from his dad. And he fails to understand the unconditional love that is his. He has activity, but he doesn't know how to live in his authority as a son. Come on, church. Are we a bit like that? Man, we're good at doing projects for God, aren't we? We're great at doing the stuff, at filling the rotors. And I know that all of that stuff has great outcomes. I'm not, it's it's not wrong. But if our heart motivation is so caught up in what we do and we fail to live in our authority as sons, we're missing it. We're just as lost as the other guy. He has function, but he doesn't have friendship. It's clear. You know, he doesn't know his dad. At the end, he's so angry. He's so resentful for the years that he's been slogging his guts out. But his dad's like, you could have had this. Everything I have is yours. You just never chose to live in it. He has information about his dad, but he doesn't have intimacy. He's great at being a servant. He's rubbish at being a son. Here is a son who defines himself by what he does and not who he is, by his service and not his status as a son. 
So when the other brother comes back on the scene, he explodes. The resentment, the anger, the jealousy, it's just seething beneath the surface, ready to boil over. And his heart is so far from healthy that he can neither be happy nor moved with an ounce of compassion for that brother that was lost for all those years. He's just resentful for how it impacts him and what he hasn't had and what he feels he's missed out on. He's self-righteous, he's judgmental, and he thinks he's superior. He thinks that his hard work makes him more of a son. Does your hard work make you think you got it sorted with your dad in heaven? There's more to being a son than servanthood. And he's distracted from his relationship too. It's not with hedonistic living. It's not with pleasure and wild gratification. He's distracted from a real relationship with his dad because he's so busy. He's busy, busy serving, working for his dad, but not from a place of devotion. You see, his actions were commendable, but his heart motivation was off. He hasn't been working with his dad He'd been working for his dad, maybe from a place of duty rather than devotion, seeking to gain his affection, to earn that which had already been given to him from the moment he was born. There's a beautiful quote from a guy called Dale L. Mast, which says this, the prodigal son did not want to live in his father's presence. The older son did not know how to live in his father's presence. And church, I wonder if we are in danger sometimes of slipping into that same pattern. The younger son took the blessings and benefits of being a son without any of the responsibilities. This is me, this is my quote, it's not from anybody else. The older son took on the responsibilities of being a son without ever inhabiting the blessing or the benefits it's like life in monochrome versus life in color. It was all available to him. And I love what this dad says as we come into close. He says, you're always with me. When his son is outraged, I've never had this dad. I've worked my butt off for you. And I've never, never had any of this. You're just wheeling this stuff out. Like It's not fair. And his dad looks at him, and I reckon there was that same compassion in his voice as he says, but you're always with me. In other words, you could have had unbroken fellowship with me. You've been in my house. You've had access to me every single day. And then he says, all that is mine is yours. In other words, there's nothing I would withhold from you. It's all at your disposal. Stop trying to work for my affection. Stop trying to earn my approval. And just receive it. Live in the fullness of what I've already done for you. And then he goes on to say, it's not about you. This party is not about you. It's fitting that I should rejoice because this guy was nearly dead. But he's beginning to live again. And if that's not worth celebrating, you've lost the plot basically. But there's one simple difference between these two sons and I think Jesus was incredibly intentional about this 
There is no pivot point for the second son. There is no moment documented about him coming to his senses, coming home, coming clean. He doesn't have that moment of metanoia, which is heart change or repentance. And I wonder why that is. I think it's twofold. Firstly, I think Jesus is trying to drive home the fact, I'm here for these people. You need to understand you're just as broken as they are. You just can't see it. But I secondly think, and this is the beautiful part of God's grace, that Jesus was leaving them with a dot, dot, dot moment of, so what are you going to do? So what are you going to do? And he does that to us as well. The choice is yours as to how this story ends, scribes and Pharisees. You get to decide whether you live in that place of sonship, whether you abide with me and stop your tick box religion, in or out mentality. If you can leave that behind and you can actually receive my love and work from a posture of sonship rather than servanthood, we can do this thing together. He gives them the choice, and this morning he gives us the choice too. So how about you today? As you looked at that portrait of three different men, I wonder where you identified somewhere in your heart. I know where I identified. I actually could identify with both of those sons enormously for different reasons. And I just have a sense that today, in the stillness of this moment, there's a homecoming moment for some of us. God never forces himself on us. He always gives us the choice. He gives us dignity. So I'm going to pray. And as I do, maybe today, you just feel like, you know what? I just want to give my heart afresh to Jesus. You might have been walking with him for many, many years, but you just have felt a distance. If that's you, in a moment, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you to the front, nothing like that. But it's just a moment of actually having the courage to say, yep, that's me. Or maybe you want to give your heart to this incredible dad for the first time. And if that's you, I'd love to pray with you today too. So I'd love us just to bow our heads for a moment as I pray. So if that's you today, if you just want to recommit your heart to Jesus, maybe just want to give him your heart afresh. Just love it if you can pop your hands in the air. I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you can pop those hands down now. Thank you. So Jesus, I want to pray for all of us, but especially for those who raise their hand today. I thank you, God, that already they are greeted by that extravagant love, that love that doesn't judge, that doesn't re reproach, 
that runs towards us and embraces us. And I just pray that each of us in this room today would know that you have designed us to inhabit that love, that Father's love. And Jesus, I pray for each of those who have just had a little homecoming moment in their hearts today, that you'd fill them with your presence, that you would wash them clean, that they would know that you have forgiven them, that you love them, that you're walking with them, and that you have designed for them to walk through life with you as sons, not for you as servants. I thank you that you're not far away. You're close, you're up close and personal. And I pray, Father, that as a church today, you would deliver us from squandering the inheritance that you've given us with good works. I pray, Father, that we would not live in the shallows of what you have done for us, that we wouldn't create a set of parameters that you never asked us to. I pray for those today who maybe feel angry or resentful like that older son because you've been working, working, working hard. I pray today you would know the blessing and the beauty and the benefits that come from being a son or a daughter. In Jesus' name. Amen.